Suppose you got five minutes in private to speak to President Biden. I'm sure some of you would probably like a lot more than five minutes to tell him what you're thinking. Uh, but suppose that's all you had, what would you say to President Biden? Or su suppose you had five minutes with our state governor, Kay Ivey. Or suppose you had five minutes with Birmingham Mayor Randall Woodfin. These civil rulers need to be told many things, no doubt. But one of the best ways you could spend your five minutes would be reading, or perhaps even singing, and then explaining Psalm 2. Because this psalm is addressed to the rulers of the earth, to those who hold authority among the nations of men. This psalm is the gospel and politics rolled into one. It is specifically addressed to rulers. It is the gospel for civil magistrates. In fact, this psalm shows us that the gospel is inseparable from politics, that the gospel itself carries with it a political message because the gospel is about the rule of God's anointed king. It's about God's king and his kingdom. And since he is king of kings and lord of lords, all earthly kings, all those who exercise rule and power among the earth's nations must submit to him and trust him and honor him. This is David's counsel to kings. This psalm really tells the story of the gospel, the story of Christ's death, resurrection, and reign. But it's also David's political theology. And I think it can help us navigate the political challenges and the tumultuous times in which we live. Because David here, as he's speaking to kings, he gives wisdom to all of God's people about these things. The New Testament really leaves no doubt as to how and when this psalm is fulfilled because this psalm gets quoted several times in the New Testament. It keeps popping up in the New Testament. There are echoes of and allusions to Psalm 2 all over the New Testament. It's also helpful, we didn't read Psalm 1 this morning, but it's also helpful to notice how Psalm 2 really pairs with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is about the blessed man. Psalm 2 is about the blessed king. Psalm 1 is about the blessed man. You could really say Psalm 2 is about the blessed king and the blessed nation. And there are interesting connections between Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 at the level of vocabulary and thematically and in other ways. Psalm 2 opens, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. It describes the rulers of the earth conspiring together, taking counsel together so they can take their stand against God and against his anointed. Now, in the New Testament, again, there's no question how this is understood. This is understood as coming to fulfillment in Jesus' crucifixion. Because what happened when Jesus was crucified? How did the crucifixion of Jesus come about? The scribes and the Pharisees and Herod and Pontius Pilate all came together to kill Jesus. These were people who normally did not get along with each other, but in a grotesque parody of the Jew-Gentile unity that Jesus came to establish, these Jews and Gentiles united together 
to kill him. They hated Jesus even more than they hated each other. They found a common enemy in Jesus. So together they took their stand against him. The psalm says there was a conspiracy against Jesus, a plot that was hatched against Jesus. It's really interesting. The same word is used in Psalm 1 to describe the righteous man meditating on the law of the Lord. So while the righteous man in Psalm 1 meditates on how to keep God's law, the wicked in Psalm 2 meditate on how to break God's law, how to kill God's anointed. The godly man in Psalm 1 delights in God's law. The wicked men in Psalm 2 rage against God's law and want to cast off its demands. They view God's law as chains. Binding them, whereas in Psalm 1, the, the psalmist obviously sees, the blessed man obviously sees the law of God as the way of blessing and freedom. This is what the nations do. They rage against God's anointed. They conspire against him. They meditate and plot ways to attack God's anointed. What does God do in response? The madness of men fulfills the purposes of God. God laughs at their war against his anointed. It's just a big joke to the Lord because God will use their rebellion to accomplish his purposes. It's really interesting. In Psalm 1, again, going back to Psalm 1, the godly man does not sit in the company of mockers. But here God makes a mockery of the mockers because their attempts to thwart his plan and oppose his Messiah are in vain. They will come to nothing. That's what it means for the plans of the wicked to be in vain. It means they come to nothing. And so in verse 6, God says very simply, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. This is describing the, uh, the inauguration, you could say the coronation of Jesus as king of kings, as the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now what's interesting here is that word for install. The word for install more literally means to pour out. To pour out. So it could be a reference to an anointing like oil being poured out over the head of the king. The king here is being installed by an anointing. Uh, and if that's the case, this installation could be a reference to Jesus' baptism, where he has water poured over him. He's anointed with water. And that's, there's even a, a when, when the Father speaks from heaven at, at, at Jesus' baptism, he's even citing Psalm 2. This is my beloved son. Same language as, uh, as found in Psalm 2 there at Jesus' baptism. But what I find interesting is that the same word, uh, that describes to pour out, this same word elsewhere in the Old Testament, in fact, this is its most frequent use, it describes sacrificial offerings poured out at the altar. And so what this could mean, what you could take this to mean, is that the king comes to his throne through sacrifice. The king comes to his throne by pouring himself out as a sacrifice, as a drink offering which would tell us here that this king who is coronated and who is installed at the Father's right hand, who is enthroned on Zion, his kingdom is established at his cross. He's coronated on Calvary. That's his coronation on Calvary, which is symbolically then the new Zion. Jesus becomes king through his sacrifice. 
That seems to be what's indicated here. As he pours himself out, he is installed as king. He inaugurates his kingdom. Verses 7, 8, and 9, then we get to overhear a conversation between the father and the son. We get to hear an inter-Trinitarian conversation between the father and his son. The Lord said to me, today I have begotten you. Now, we might think this refers to the eternal begetting that we make reference to in the creeds, that the son is eternally begotten of the father. But it's interesting, in Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 13... He quotes Psalm 2, and he uses this line to point to Jesus' resurrection. This beginning is interpreted as Christ's resurrection. The today of today I have begotten you. The today is Easter. It's Easter Sunday. He is begotten as the firstborn from the dead. And so we move from Christ's death to his resurrection and then to his reign as verses 8 and 9 describe how his kingdom will grow and flourish in history. The father promises the son the nations as his inheritance. The ends of the earth will become his possession. All he has to do is ask and the nations will be given to him. The nations are his. They're his for the asking, his for the taking. The father tells the son, you will break the nations with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like pottery. In other words, the son will judge the nations all throughout history. He will sift and judge the nations. He will shake the nations down throughout history. These verses really describe the son's mission as he judges the nations in order to lead the nations to salvation. These verses really describe his mission in the world today. The fruit of his death and resurrection. The growth of his kingdom in the world. On the one hand, what is promised to the son here converges with God's promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12 when God said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, how's that blessing going to come? That blessing will come through this son, Jesus. He's the true seed of Abraham. He will bring blessing to all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth. On the other hand, what is promised to the son here converges with the mission given to the church in Matthew 28, the passage we read this morning, known as the Great Commission, where the church is commanded to disciple the nations. We have a mandate to go baptize the nations and teach them everything that Jesus commanded. So what's going on here? How should we understand this? What God covenanted to do for Abraham back in Genesis, and what God commanded the church to do in the Great Commission, and what God has promised to give his son as his inheritance all fit together. They all fit together. The covenant made with Abraham, the command given to the church, and the promise given to the son all concern the nations. And in fact, the nations really form a huge theme in Scripture. All throughout Scripture, we see that God is concerned with the nations of men. And this really ties in with how David ends the psalm where David begins talking about kings. So now we know he's really talking about nations as political entities, as geopolitical realities. The psalm concludes with David's advice, you could say, to all the kings of the earth. This is one earthly king speaking to other earthly kings on behalf of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if David, if, if King David got his five minutes with President Biden, 
This is what he'd say, something like this, what you find in these final three verses. This is what he would say and expound to the president or any other civil ruler. And I also find it really interesting. In this psalm to this point, we have heard from the rebellious nations. We have heard from Yahweh. We have heard from the Messiah, the son of Yahweh. And now we get to the conclusion. We hear from David himself as the Holy Spirit inspired author of this psalm. What does David have to say to the kings of the earth? He says, therefore, you kings, be wise. In other words, don't be like those foolish kings described at the beginning of the psalm. Those kings who rebelled against God's anointed, who sought to cast off his law, who sought to cast off the, the, the restraints of his commands. Don't be like those foolish kings. Be wise. Be a wise king. David goes on, he says, be warned, you rulers of the earth. A warning indicates danger. The rulers of the earth are in grave danger. Rulers have great power, and therefore they have great responsibility, and they are accountable to King Jesus. They will be judged accordingly. They will be, they will be held accountable by Jesus himself. David here is putting all the kings of the earth on notice. All those who hold civil power throughout the earth, throughout history, are being put on notice here by David. So we've got the word of wisdom. We've got this word of warning. What is the wisdom? What is the warning? What does David have to say? This is his counsel for kings. He says, serve the Lord with fear. Remember, fear is the beginning of wisdom. Serve the Lord with fear Rejoice in his rule with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Kiss the son. Bow before him. Bow before his majesty. Show him homage. Show him honor. That's what he says to the kings. And really the last line here, this last line, blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is addressed not only to kings, and we could say presidents and prime ministers and governors and judges and legislators. It is addressed to everyone. To everyone, to all tribes, nations, peoples, and languages. All are called upon to seek refuge in Jesus and find blessing in him. And again, this ties into the earlier part of the psalm. The Messiah will inherit the nations. So all nations from top to bottom here are commanded to take refuge in in him. Wrath is coming upon those who reject Jesus. Wrath is coming upon them, especially upon kings who have a special responsibility. Wrath is coming. Only Jesus can protect us from the wrath of Jesus. This psalm shows us that. Jesus suffered the unrighteous wrath of earthly kings and he suffered the righteous wrath of his father as his father laid upon him the sins of us all. And he suffered this wrath to spare us from wrath. So he is our substitute who took the curse that belonged to us so we can receive the blessing that belongs to him. He is our place of refuge. The only safe place to be is in Jesus. When wrath comes, that's where you want to be, is in Jesus. When judgment comes, you want to be found in Jesus because he's a shield, he's a protector, He's a place of refuge. 
Now, why does this psalm address kings? Why does it emphasize that nations are Christ's inheritance? Further, what does it look like when a king kisses the king of kings? What does that look like? What does it look like when Christ inherits a nation? What does it look like when Christ takes possession of a nation? What does it look like when he shatters a nation with, the, with his rod of iron? What does it look like when he dashes a nation to pieces? What does Psalm 2 reveal about God's purposes for history, how God is at work in history? I think these are questions that American Christians struggle to answer Largely because we don't frame the gospel this way. This is not how we talk about the gospel. American Christians tend to be very myopic in our focus on the individual. We have a focus on having a personal or individual relationship with Jesus. And of course, that's, that, that's all true as far as it goes. It's wonderful to have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's right there at the heart of the Christian life, no doubt. But we're so focused on that that we tend to miss the bigger picture of what Jesus is doing in history among the nations. And so we just filter out a great deal of what's here in, in a psalm like this because it, it just doesn't register for us. We just don't think about the Christian faith or the gospel this way. Yes, you do have a personal relationship with Jesus, but Jesus does not deal exclusively with individuals. He's also concerned with families and with nations and even with empires. And really, we'll, we see this if we really grasp what Scripture calls the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a major, major, major theme in Scripture. In fact, you could say, if you ask, what's the Bible about? One way to answer that question is you could say, the Bible, from beginning to end, it's all about the kingdom of God. That's what it's about. But see, again, American churches tend to preach the gospel of the individual rather than the gospel of the kingdom. Psalm 2 is the gospel of the kingdom. When Jesus began preaching, when he began his public ministry in Matthew chapter 4, it says Jesus went about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The apostle Paul and the other apostles preached the gospel of the kingdom. What does it mean to preach the gospel of the kingdom? What is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel of the kingdom means this. The king is bringing salvation to the nations. His kingdom transforms nations. His kingdom disciples nations. It means Jesus came to transform this world, to restore this world, to put this world back on track so that his design and his purposes for humanity can be fulfilled so he can bring us to maturity. And of course, it ultimately culminates with his final coming at the last day and the resurrection of the dead and the glorious final form of the new creation, all of that. But the whole message of the New Testament is that the kingdom is already here. The king is present and at work right now. He's bringing his salvation to the nations. See, Jesus suffered under the wicked tyranny of rulers like Herod and Pilate so he could topple these tyrants and put righteous kings in their place. Kings who would rule the way he rules. Kings who would image his rule in how they rule. 
It is good to live under the rule of King Jesus. King Jesus is a kind and merciful and benevolent ruler. He is a perfectly righteous and wise and loving king. And it's also good to live under the rule of kings or presidents or governors or mayors who want to rule in submission to Jesus, who want to do Jesus' will as rulers in the civil sphere, in the sphere where they have authority in their domain. A king who kisses the son, who kisses King Jesus, is not only a king who trusts Jesus with his personal salvation and who looks to Jesus for the forgiveness of his sins, that is true, but he will also be a king or a ruler who will seek to organize his domain, who will seek to rule over his domain Christianly, biblically, who will seek to do God's will insofar as it is possible to do so in the public sphere. He will want the laws of his land to conform to God's law. A Christian ruler will do what he can to create a Christian nation. Now, when you start talking about Christian nations, there are some people who get real skittish about that, real nervous about that. There are even some Christians today, you want to see how deep the, the, the gospel of the individual has gotten into us in America today. There are some Christians who recoil at the very thought of a Christian nation. That sounds horrible to them. That's sad because that is an insult to Jesus. There are some who seem to think that a Christian nation would be a terrible thing, but that's an insult to King Jesus. I would actually say if we love our neighbors, and this is one reason why we should be engaged in politics, we should seek to understand what's happening in the world around us, and we should be engaged in the, you know, we've got a civic duty to be engaged in the political process and, and in other ways that we can influence the world around us. If you love your neighbor, one of the best things you can do for your neighbor is seek to form a Christian culture, a Christian society, yes, a Christian politics for all of us to live in. That's for the good of all. Clear away a few misconceptions here. What does it mean when a king kisses the son? Well, a king who kisses the son will know that he can't change hearts. That's God's prerogative. That's the work of the Spirit. So he'll leave changing hearts to the evangelistic work of the church as the church preaches the gospel. He's not going to try to change hearts. He knows he can't do that. But he also knows that righteous laws can train people to live better lives and can in many cases protect them from their own worst impulses as sinners. And so having righteous laws is better than the opposite. A king who kisses the son will not force people to become Christians because he knows that faith cannot be coerced. But he will make sure that the church has freedom to carry out her mission. He will acknowledge the church as the body of Christ and the Bible as the word of God. He will acknowledge the church and the scripture for what they are, for the realities that they are. A king who kisses the son will want to honor Jesus in his public office and will want laws that reflect the wisdom and justice of God's law to be implemented in his land. And in doing so, of course, he will respect God's design for human life, including marriage and family, work and commerce. 
He will use the power of the sword to punish and suppress public wickedness, as Romans 13 defines the role of the civil magistrate. Romans 13 calls the civil ruler God's deacon, God's servant, and says he is to use the power of the sword that has been entrusted to him to encourage the good and to administer God's vengeance against the evil. Not his own vengeance, but God's vengeance. Now, 2024 is an election year. And one thing we can be thankful for is that King Jesus never has to run for re-election. He's always on his throne, always ruling. But of course, we will have election, an election later in this year. And I realize that it is not likely that you will find very many candidates on the ballot who have kissed the sun. You won't find very many candidates on the ballot who have kissed the sun, who would use their civil authority if elected in accord with Jesus' will. But here's the thing. One reason we have so few righteous candidates to vote for is because the church has done so little teaching on the proper duties of civil rulers in the place of nations in God's purposes. So let me point, to, to you, to point out to you a few other things here that scripture teaches. Things that you, you may already be very familiar with or things you may not have considered. Psalm 2 is obviously a mandate for rulers to submit their rule to the rule of Christ. And they are warned about what will happen if they do not comply, if they do not kiss the Son and honor him in their public office. It's very interesting. The New Testament picks up on this theme of rulers and nations in all kinds of ways. But let me give you one thread here. This is one of many threads we could follow. David here is speaking to kings, those in civil rule. All throughout the New Testament, you see this desire to speak to kings, to speak to those in civil rule. Jesus told his disciples they would stand before kings. Luke wrote two books in the New Testament, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, of course, and Acts. They're almost certainly addressed to a civil ruler who's given the name Theophilus, perhaps to protect his identity. That means God lover. He's a disciple of Luke, a disciple of Jesus, almost certainly a man who held civil office. That's who Luke is writing to in his two-volume work, a man who holds civil power. The book of Acts records Christians repeatedly preaching to civil officials, with some of them even converting. So you have the Ethiopian eunuch, In Acts chapter 8, who has gone to Jerusalem for the feast, he is a court official, we are told, to Queen Candace in Ethiopia. So he's a member of the queen's court. He is one of her advisors. He'd be like a a cabinet member. He is a counselor to the queen. And when Philip preaches the gospel to him, he believes it. And he carries it back to Ethiopia as he goes. Cornelius, in Acts chapter 10, was a centurion, which means he was a fairly high-ranking official in the Roman military. And when Peter preaches the gospel to him, he believes it as well. Acts chapter 13, just making our way through Acts. Sergius Paulus is the proconsul in uh, Cyprus. He's basically a governor who has uh, legislative authority. He's got law-making authority there in Cyprus. And when Paul preaches the gospel to him, we're actually told he was an intelligent or sensible man. When Paul preaches the gospel to him, what does he do? He repents, he kisses the son, he hears Paul preach Jesus, and he believes the message. 
Paul also preached the gospel to King Agrippa in Acts 24, and, I'm sorry, Acts 25 and 26. Paul is a prisoner. He's in chains. He's on trial, but he uses the opportunity to preach to Agrippa and to his court. And, and Agrippa says that Paul could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. Why did Paul appeal to Caesar? Why was it so important for Paul to get to Caesar? The whole trajectory of the book of Acts is about Paul getting to Rome and preaching before Caesar. And Paul would rather do that than have his freedom. He remained in chains and made his appeal to Caesar because he saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the emperor himself. And that was Paul's goal. To stand before kings, to stand before the emperor, and to declare the king of kings. Paul, we know, had success in converting many members of Caesar's household or Caesar's administration. We're told that elsewhere in the New Testament. And again, the whole trajectory of the book of Acts is to move from Jerusalem to Rome with the goal of preaching to higher and higher ranking officials along the way until finally the gospel reaches the capital of the empire and the emperor himself. Now, Acts is basically an unfinished story. Uh, it ends with Paul awaiting his uh, moment to stand before Caesar. We know from history that Caesar did not convert uh, in the book of Acts or under uh, Paul's preaching. But think about this. Jesus did dash the Roman Empire to pieces. And he did so by transforming the empire. A few centuries later, it took a while, but a few centuries later, Constantine did convert. And following his lead, the whole Roman Empire was largely Christianized. It wasn't perfect, but it was glorious, and it was certainly much better than anything that had gone before. The Christianization of the empire brought about all kinds of good things for everyone, not just for those who were Christian, but for non-Christians as well. It was good that Constantine outlawed pagan sacrifice. He put an end to human sacrifice. It was good that Christian emperors encouraged the Christian Sabbath to give workers a rest. It was good that Christian emperors outlawed prostitution. It was good that Christian emperors enforced marriage laws that encouraged monogamy. And basically created the kind of family that, that today we take for granted, but that certainly didn't exist in the ancient pagan world with a man and a woman happily married, raising their children together, where there's the expectation of, of kindness and love in the marriage, the expectation of fidelity. See, all these things were brought about through the Christianization of the empire. And this tradition of the church making a special point to preach the gospel to kings has continued throughout church history. So, for example, maybe you've heard about Calvin's Institutes. John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, he wrote a massive work called The Institutes of the Christian Religion, one of the most important books written in all of history, helped create the modern world as we know it, all the benefits and blessings we enjoy. So many of them flowed through Calvin and his work. Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion really summarized Reformed Protestant theology. You know what? He dedicated that work to the King of France, to King Francis, who was ruling over France at that time. He addressed it to a king. And you can read his words, rather sharp and pointed words, to the king in his preface to the Institutes. There are countless passages of scripture that describe rulers 
uh, in the future, coming to serve God, serve God's Messiah, promising even the kings will serve the good of God's people, the church. See, the gospel is for civil rulers. The gospel is for kings because the gospel announces a king and a kingdom. The gospel is for nations because the gospel announces that Jesus rules the nations, judges the nations, and will inherit the nations as his redemptive possession. The Great Commission ties into this. The Great Commission requires us to disciple whole nations. That includes kings. That includes transforming the institutions and the culture of a people. The Great Commission, when it says we're to go disciple the nations, that means the rulers and the ruled, the kings and the people. We're to train all of them to obey all of Christ's commandments. Nations as nations, nations as collective entities should obey King Jesus. And if they don't, he will smash them with his rod of iron. He will dash them to pieces. Psalm 2 is addressed to all kings and to all nations. And that means it is addressed to President Biden. It is addressed to America. And yes, that means that Jesus will judge America for her sins. Oh, but don't you know the First Amendment? Don't you know we have freedom of religion? People can worship whoever or whatever they want. I tell you, the First Amendment is not going to protect us from the iron rod of Jesus. The First Amendment is not going to protect us from his wrath or from his judgment. Saying we believe in the separation of church and state will not protect us. Babylon, Assyria, Greece, Rome, Christ smashed all of them with his rod of iron and he will smash us with his rod as well. Unless we repent. Unless our rulers kiss the sun and our people flee to the sun for refuge. America needs to repent from top to bottom and bottom to top. We need repentance. We need to repent of our sexual corruption. We need to approve of giving sodomy approval. We need to repent of our greed, our envy, our laziness, our unjust violence, our lack of gratitude. In our nation, we have a wonderful Christian heritage. And so much of what we enjoy, our free markets, our Bill of Rights, all those kinds of things, the, 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 the peace and prosperity we have enjoyed, so much of it is the fruit of that Christian heritage. But we are squandering it at an alarming rate. Many Americans, including many American Christians, have been so comfortable for so long, and our nation has been so powerful and so prosperous, that many Americans figure this is just the way things are. This is going to go on forever. We're immune to judgment. We can't fall. We don't have any enemy that can really rival us. That is not true. That is a lie. That is a deception. Every other great nation, every other great empire throughout history thought the same and then fell. And we will too. We will fall into ruin. Our nation, our culture, our country will crumble unless we repent and turn to Jesus. And let me tell you, this repentance must start with the church. Christians need repentance too. We must start with the church. We must lead the way. We are part of the problem. But churches have a really hard time leading the way in repentance right now because so many churches in America are compromised. 
Even, even amongst what we might think of as good, conservative, traditional, faithful churches. We've got preachers who say they believe in the inerrancy and authority of the Bible and then spend most of their time in the pulpit apologizing for what it says instead of declaring it. We should never apologize for the teaching of God's word. Many Christians fear man more than they fear Christ. And so they will do all they can to avoid saying things that will offend people in the culture. But let me tell you something. It is always a sin to try to be nicer than Jesus. Jesus was not, already, was not always nice, and Jesus certainly offended many. Yes, it is true. We must speak the truth in love. But so often today, you've got Christians who think the loving thing to do is to not speak the truth at all. No, love qualifies and shapes the way we communicate truth, but it's still truth. It's truth that stings. It's hard-edged truth. It is true we must love our enemies, but to love our enemies, we have to have enemies. So much of the church today is afraid to say anything that would stir up opposition. And so we have no real enemies. We don't want to have any enemies. We heal wounds lightly. We cry out peace, peace when there is no peace. Francis Schaeffer once said, truth requires confrontation. Loving confrontation, yes, but confrontation nevertheless. Psalm 2 is one of those passages that confronts the world with the truth of Christ's reign, with the truth of Christ's gospel. Every nation Every king, every ruler is obligated to bow before Christ's majesty. This is the only way to blessing. It's the only way to peace and prosperity. Psalm 33, 12 summarizes this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Proverbs 14, 34 summarizes this as well. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin as a reproach to any people. Any nation can be exalted through righteousness. Any nation can be brought low through sin. The true ruler of this nation and every nation is Jesus. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is king over all. And he owns the nations. He owns the nations because he purchased them with his own blood. He is gracious. He is patient. He's merciful. But not endlessly so. He wants to get what he paid for, what he purchased with his own blood, and that is nations that serve him. And if that means dashing America with his rod of iron so something new and more faithful can arise in its place, that's what he will do. He has been very kind to us as Americans. But if we take his gifts for granted instead of giving him thanks, if we use our resources to serve ourselves instead of to serve him and his kingdom, yes, he will swing his rod of iron against us. He will smash us into pieces. The time to repent is now. Now here's the thing. After the political events of the last few years, especially after all of the COVID nonsense and, and watching various three-letter government agencies get weaponized against Christians and watching schools and libraries promote all kinds of perversion for kids. After several years now of watching moral norms in our society rapidly erode, many Christians 
are interested in just these kinds of questions. Many Christians are interested in these kinds of questions, these kind of political and cultural questions as never before. And that is good. But asking those questions is not the same as answering them. And unless Psalm 2 is our answer, we're going to go astray. A nation that will not submit to Jesus as king will face Jesus as judge. And again, that is where we are headed apart from repentance. In fact, I'd say it looks like the judgment is already underway. It looks like Jesus is judging us right now, like his rod of iron is already dashing us into pieces. Why do we have so much chaos and confusion and division in our nation? Why is it that so many of our major institutions are already broken and not really trusted by anybody? Jesus is dashing us to pieces with his rod of iron. I do find it interesting. There really is no obvious outside threat in the world today equal to America. It seems the only thing that could cause our downfall would be if it came from within. And that appears to be exactly what is happening. The greatest threat to America today is not Russia, it's not China. The greatest threat to America today is Jesus and his rod of iron. That's the greatest threat to our nation. Now, in the midst of all of this, let me give you some hope. I don't want anybody to lose heart. See, the thing is, the nations and their rulers still conspire against the Lord's anointed. President Biden, no doubt, conspires against the Lord's anointed. Congress does. The Supreme Court does. It seems the FBI does. The CDC does. They all do. They're all conspiring against the Lord and against his anointed. They're still doing it. You know what? God is on his throne in heaven laughing. Jesus is laughing, and we can laugh too, because we know Jesus is going to get the last laugh. And 100 years from now, every petty tyrant in America and the rest of the world is going to be dead and gone, and Jesus will still be reigning over all. Those who want to dethrone Jesus are on a fool's quest. Their plots against him are all in vain. It may seem that as faithful Christians, we are all alone. We are a shrinking remnant, it seems. We are vastly outnumbered and out-resourced. And I would say, you know what? That's true. That's right. I won't argue with that. The politicians hate us. The media is against us. The celebrities, the universities, the, the WEF, the government bureaucracies. It seems they're all against us. And they're all against Jesus. But again, their foolish conspiracies will come to nothing in the end. I suggest you laugh at them. God is laughing, we can laugh too. What is Jesus doing in history? His purposes are sure and firm. Jesus will shake down the kingdoms of this world continually so that only his unshakable kingdom may remain. Nations rise and fall according to his decree. There's nothing permanent about America. America doesn't have to continue to exist. But the kingdom of God the kingdom of God is unstoppable. The kingdom of God is permanent. The gospel is the most powerful force on earth. Do you believe that? That the gospel is the most powerful force 
in the world, stronger than anything the government can do, stronger than any military, stronger than anything Hollywood can do. It is the most powerful force on earth. Don't let this momentary crisis we're in obscure the big picture. Don't let the bumpy ride distract you from the destination. Hail King Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Jesus rules over all. Jesus has been promised the nations. They are his for the asking. Jesus is our refuge. Jesus is our ruler. Jesus is our savior. He is the savior of the nations. His will will be done. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.